0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. We're going to read this morning from Romans, so if you'd like to turn with me to Romans chapter eight, a very familiar chapter for some of you, Romans chapter eight, and we're going to read from verse twelve. Romans chapter eight, starting at verse twelve. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share also in his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're, we're grateful once again for for this opportunity to come together to worship and then to meditate and and think about and study your word. Father, we pray that these familiar words for many of us would not leave us untouched, but they would create deep change in the depths of our being that we may better reflect you in this world. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name and to your glory, amen. So, recently, we had some friends come uh, from Temple, Texas, and they, and they came to stay with us in New York City, and it was her birthday, she's here this morning, and uh, she loves art. And so, we took her uh, to the new gallery on the East, Upper East Side. And right now, they've got this temporary exhibition of paintings by the artist Edward Munch, um, and uh, well, can we, he's very famous for this painting, right, this one here, The Scream, many of you will have seen that. And in this painting, and in so many others, the theme is one of alienation and estrangement, of isolation and the fear and dread that comes with that. In painting after painting, you have pictures of people who are maybe uh, physically close together, but they're emotionally, they're miles apart. In painting after painting, you see people who are maybe standing in the same room, maybe standing quite close to each other, maybe even touching. Yet you can tell that they're isolated alienated, cut off from each other. They're alone. They're alone. And Munch had a, a way of capturing these moments in paint and canvas and presenting them back to us. Um, I think we've all experienced something like this before. So, sometimes we experience this in a crowded room full of people we don't know, maybe on a Sunday morning sometimes. Uh, I've, in New York, I, I sometimes experience this on, on the subway in a crowded car, and for a moment you look up from your phone, or, f- or from your book, and, and you, and you n- just notice the faces, you just take note of the faces of the people in the car with you, and people are kind of tripping over you, and they're brushing past you, and it, it's, it's a full car, but it's all rather intimate in some ways, and, and yet in that moment, in, in that crowded car, you or the person sitting next to you uh, might actually be feeling rather alienated, isolated, estranged cut off and it's not just because everybody's wearing their earbuds it's just that this is part of the human experience i think the far more disturbing experience of this is when we experience it with someone we know and love Someone we've known and loved for, for many years and normally communication is smooth and, and, and they get you and you get them. No explanation needed, but, but for some reason in this moment you can't seem to uh, make yourself understood. You can't seem to reach them. You can't make yourselves understood to each other. You're alienated, estranged from each other in that moment. Maybe some of you, it's a very helpless feeling. Have you ever experienced this? Maybe some of you have experienced this with a, with a good friend. And even as I say that, you picture someone in your head, someone comes to mind. Maybe some of you have experienced this with family members, and some of us have experienced it. Some of you may have experienced it in what should be the most intimate of relationships, and yet many people have experienced this at different times with their spouse alienated from them in their own marriage. Munch had a way of capturing these moments and presenting them back to us in paint on canvas and I've been recently wondering how would Munch have painted the church in Rome How much have painted the church in Rome? Because one of the reasons that Paul is writing to the church in Rome is to address precisely this experience of alienation and estrangement and isolation and the fear and dread that come with that. He's writing to people who are not only in the same room, but they're in the same church, and yet they're estranged from each other. He's writing to people who are not only in in the same uh, space, but they're in the same congregation, the same body, and yet they're alienated from each other. Like those people in Munch, the Munch paintings, uh, who may be physically close together, these people in Rome were emotionally miles apart. They were emotionally miles apart. How would Munch have painted the church in Rome? What had gone wrong in Rome? Well, in, in AD 49, the Roman Emperor Claudius had banished all Jewish people from the city. Now, the, the Congregation in Rome had been mostly Jewish converts. It had been a predominantly Jewish congregation. Uh, but he'd banished them in this It is actually mentioned in Acts chapter 16. Now, it's easy for those words, just the roll of my tongue, those words fall from my mouth, and, and it becomes another interesting bit of historical trivia that the pastor drops on you on a Sunday morning, and then we move on. But let's, let's not do that this morning. Let, let's, let's stay with it for a moment. And so I think the more we connect with the people who receive this letter, the original recipients, the more this letter is going to connect with us, right? We connect with them, this letter is going to connect better with us. Does that make sense? So let's just stay there for a moment. Let's not, let's not let it be a, just another piece of interesting historical trivia. So what happened, what would happen if this happened to, what would it be like if this happened to us? What would it be like if we, the mayor of temple decides that all Christians have to leave town, we have to Pack up our bags, and and so overnight, you pack your bags. Maybe you get to take some of your things, you don't get to take all of your things. Maybe you get to say goodbye to some of your friends, but you don't get to say goodbye to everybody, not all of your friends, and we leave town. We're exiled. What kind of mark would that kind of event leave on your life? What kind of mark would that kind of event leave on your life? In other words, what would it do to your relationships, your future relationships? What would it do to the way that you approached people and, and approached life and relationships in the future? What would it do to that? What kind of mark would that kind of event leave on your life? I wouldn't be surprised if words like fear and dread, isolation, alienation, estrangement were the words that you reached for in order to describe that particular experience. Now, even though Emperor Claudius uh, never formally cancelled this imperial edict, it was never formally annulled, when Claudius died in AD 54, uh, sometime after that, Jewish people felt they could start returning to Rome. They felt they could return to the city and take their former residence. Now, imagine that the mayor of Temple dies, and now we can come back to Temple, Texas, and we can come back to this church. But what we discover is the church is now filled with people from an entirely different cultural background. The majority of people are from an entirely different cultural background, different way of doing things. And the leadership of this church has changed, right? You don't know them, they don't recognize you. You don't know them, they don't know you. Now, does does it feel like you're coming home, or does it feel like you're now suddenly a stranger in your own home? Does it feel like you're coming home, or does it feel like you're a stranger in your own home? Well, that's precisely what happened. Jewish brothers and sisters left. They were banished, exiled. The Gentile population in Rome blew up in that church. They, they become the majority, very different cultural background. They take over the leadership. Then the Jewish brothers and sisters come back, only it's a very different situation now. And in this new context, relationships between the two groups became tense and sometimes even hostile. And so Paul, throughout Romans, is writing to bring these people together. He's writing to bring these lives in touch with each other for the first time. He's writing to connect them, and Paul is convinced that it is the gospel. It is the gospel that has the power to do this. Now, let's just hit the pause button there for a second, because I know that sometimes when we we use that word, phrase gospel, there's a picture that comes to mind. It's a very powerful metaphor. It can become like the dominant motif, if you like. When we say gospel, sometimes people think immediately of of this picture of justification in a court of law. It's the the law court metaphor, right? You know know the one where the the individual is so obviously guilty, and there's no escaping the, the punishment that the law is going to bring. The judge walks in. We all rise. And he reads his verdict. And to our shock and amazement, he declares us not guilty. He declares us in the right. He justifies in his court. You know, it's the law court metaphor, right? Many of us will be familiar with that. It's become a very powerful image. Such a powerful metaphor, in fact, that people both inside and outside the church, when they hear people talking about the gospel and church and Christianity, that this is the picture that comes to mind. People think of the gospel, can sometimes only think of the gospel in legal terms and it always takes place in a celestial court of law before a divine judge, and it's always about the individual, and the individual's right standing before the law and this judge, right? So, so they can only think of the, the metaphor so powerful that sometimes people can only think of the gospel in legal terms. It always takes place in, in the celestial court of law before a divine judge, and it's, and it's always about the individual and the individual's right standing before the law, the individual's right standing before this judge and this court. Now, this is all well and good and true, but it's good and true, but it's not the only metaphor and picture that Paul uses to depict the gospel and what it's like to be in a relationship with the God of the universe. No, that the, Paul offers us a rich variety of different metaphors to describe what this gospel, to describe what it's like to be in a relationship with, with God. And in this moment, as is trying... To bring these two groups of people together, people in the same church yet alienated from each other, people in the same congregation yet estranged from each other, as he's writing to bring their lives to connect with each other, Paul doesn't reach for the law court metaphor. Oh, he's been using it. He uses it earlier on in this chapter. But now, he reaches for an entirely different metaphor, and it is a metaphor of adoption. And, and here's, what, here's what Paul says. He says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. My mom is Armenian. Uh, but she was born and brought up in Iran. There there was a large Armenian community that was exiled to Iran sometime earlier. And she was born the seventh child in a family who weren't entirely sure how they were going to feed, a seventh mouth. but her birth mom had this friend from school days, an old childhood friend. She'd grown up with them, and they had sadly uh, recently lost a child of their own, and they weren't able to have more children. And so so, uh, these this old school friend ends up adopting my mom. Now, back then in 1950s Iran, uh, things were done a little differently back then, right? It was not, adoption was not the kind of long legal process that it is today. It, it was more of an agreement between friends. And so as soon as, as my mom was born, her birth mom never held her, she was passed on straight to this old school friend, this childhood friend, and her and her husband became my mom's parents, and they eventually become my grandparents. Now, uh, this is, like I said, they used to, it was done differently back then. Nowadays, uh, we do what's called open adoption. Many of you are, are doing that now. And in fact, when Julia's mom was adopting a, a couple of kids a few years ago, some years ago, um, she was encouraged to just tell the children right from the start that they were adopted. Just make it part of the normal narrative of their lives. It's not a secret. Just tell them they're adopted from the beginning. But that's not how they did things back, back then in Iran in the 50s. So um, it, it, was, it was different. Uh, and so that's not how my mom found out. And, here, and here's how she found out. She, she remembers. Uh, one day she reaches for the family Bible. She pulls it down. And she opens it up. And it's amazing what you can discover when you start reading the Bible. And, and so she, she doesn't get past the first page. You know how sometimes in the first page or two there's the place to record births and deaths and marriages and christenings and all of that, right? And, and so... Um, she, she opens it, she's looking at this kind of family tree type thing and she's li- looking at this list of people. And right next to her name she sees it says ad- adopted. And this little twelve year old girl, you know, she scrunches up her eyes and opens them again. She does this kind of double take, but no, she'd read it right. That's what it said. It said adopted. Well, she determined right then and there that it made precious little difference to her. Made precious little and, and she decided that if her parents didn't want to tell her right then, then that was up to them. And so she closed up the Bible and she put it back on the shelf. Some years later, her parents, when she was 16, it was her 16th birthday, they sat her down and they said, you're 16 now, you're old enough to know this and we, you need to know this, we must tell you now. There's something very important we've got to tell you. She, she immediately knew what it was they wanted to tell her. And so she said it for them. She said, oh, I know what you want to tell me. She said, you want to tell me I'm adopted? Yeah, she said, I've known that for a few years. And and they just breathed this sigh of relief. And it was a beautiful moment. It really was. It was this beautiful moment. Um, Of course, years earlier... As a 12-year-old girl, when she first found out on her own that she was adopted, of course it had an emotional impact on her. Of course it did. How could it not? Yeah, it had an emotional impact on her, but whatever um, negative emotion they may have been wrapped up in that, it was vastly outweighed, vastly outweighed by this overwhelming sense of love. My mom has always said that she has never felt so unconditionally loved as is humanly possible than she has from her parents, and I've never known anyone love their parents as much as my mom loves her, loved her parents. No, never have. Now, over the years, her, her birth family reached out to her. She's got a great relationship with her siblings now. But even when she met, for the, the one and only time she met her, her birth mom, um, it, it was a very rather unemotional, matter-of-fact meeting. And the first words out of her birth mom's mouth in, in Armenian, she said, "'I'm so glad. I'm thankful that I gave you away.'" And my mom wholeheartedly agreed, because her parents were her parents, and her family was her family. And Paul says, this is what the gospel does for you and me. This is what the gospel does for us. He says it's the spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption." The spirit by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit who testifies with our spirit that we, we are his children. The spirit who says that we are heirs, joint heirs with Christ Jesus. This is, this is, what, this is the language, adoption, sonship, Abba, Father, children, heirs, co-heirs. This is the vocabulary that Paul reaches for to describe this new, new closeness, this, this new intimacy with the living God. This is the vocabulary he reaches for, and, and, and one theologian describes it this way. What he does is he, he he brings together those two pictures, the two metaphors we've been, you know, the one I mentioned earlier about the justification and the law court metaphor, and then this adoption metaphor. And he brings them together, and he says this. He says Paul teaches that the gift of justification, that is, the present acceptance of God as the world's judge, brings with it the status of sonship by adoption that is permanent intimacy with God as one's heavenly father. Justification is the basic blessing on which adoption is founded. Adoption is the crowning blessing to which the justification clears the way. And he says this, he says, the adopted status of believers means that in and through Christ, God loves them as he loves his only begotten son. My mom had this overwhelming sense of love in her adopted status. God loves them as he does through Christ. God loves them as he loves his only begotten son. But we'd be missing the point if we left it there. Uh, we'd, we'd just be missing the point because, because if this gospel brings the individual this close to God, it also brings us this close to each other. This is why Paul begins this section, as he's about to talk about doctrine, sonship, abba, father, children, heirs, co-heirs, right, all that vocabulary. He begins this section, he frames it with these words. He says, now, brothers and sisters, What's that? He says, now, brothers and sisters. He's saying the gospel makes this new family. If you're adopted and you're adopted, you're adopted and you're adopted and you're adopted, but you're all adopted by the same person, you, you, you're part of the same family. The gospel brings us this close to God. It also brings us this close to each other. Imagine, just again, let's jump back into Rome. Imagine what, it would, what this reality could do for a people who were alienated from each other and estranged from each other in that church in Rome? What would it do for the relationship between the Jewish and Gentile Christians who were alienated and estranged from each other along racial and cultural lines? What would it do there if they started living and operating out of this this reality of adoption? I've had the privilege of seeing this work very powerfully in, in exactly that situation where there was division but along racial and cultural lines. Uh, Some years ago, some friends and I uh, got involved in ministry together and uh, the ministry was going quite well, some good things were happening, but somewhere along the way, relationships became tense and the ministry fell apart. The relationships became tense and the military fell apart. Now, there were various contributing factors. There, there, there were. Uh, but in a post-mortem, one of my friends involved, he, he said, look, one major contributing factor was this. It had to do with race and culture. He said that one major contributing factor was to do with race and culture. And he said, look, here's the truth. He said, the truth is I have been brought up from the age, he says up from Nehi, from the age of three. He remembers being brought up to believe that those white people were out to get him that they were were going to work against him, no matter what. Now, it would take someone with, with very severe historical amnesia to wonder why he would believe something like that. In fact, his grandmother who brought him up his grandmother had brought him up had a pretty good historical precedent on which to build her case. And, and, and let's, let's be honest, right? It, it, you don't actually need history. You just need to look at the way the world is today. And actually, you can, you can build a pretty strong case. So, so I actually joked with him. I said, hey, I said, you, you know, I'm Asian. I'm not white. I'm Asian, right? You get that. He, he, he laughs. He goes, yeah, you know, the way I was taught, if you're not white, if you're not black, you're white, right? This is just, this is, hey, this is just his experience. This is, this is what he experienced, what he was taught. Um... And so he said with genuine emotion, with tears in his eyes, he said, look, this has been drummed into me from the age of three. It's just been drummed into me. And so he said it didn't matter how much we, uh, we hung out in each other's homes. and It didn't matter how often, how much it looked like we were on the same team. We were not on the same team. And it was all going to collapse under the weight of centuries of evil. And that's what it is. It was centuries of evil. And it was going to collapse under that. Now... Where's the good news in this? Well, the good news is this. Even though our ministry fell apart together at that time, our relationship didn't. The relationship became tense, but in the long term, our relationship did not fall apart. Um, and recently when he and his family were staying with us in New York City a few months ago, we remembered what made the difference. What, what, what cut through those centuries of evil? What, what cut through the, this alienation and estrangement and the fear and suspicion that our society breathes in us. What, what cut through all that? Well, he and I would both point to Paul's words here in Romans. He sums it up beautifully. It's, it's all this talk of brothers and sisters. Now, what was that? Brothers and sisters. And it's all this talk of, of adoption and, and the spirit of sonship. And we just couldn't let this stuff go or it wouldn't let go of us. It's probably more, to, it wouldn't let go of us. It look at, and, and it cut through all of that. And there was this shift in the very depths of my friend's being and in mine. And we stopped operating out of fear and suspicion. And, and we started operating out of the spirit of sonship and adoption. And it, and it brought about a deep transformation. Now, I. We might want to just stop there for a moment and kind of assess our own experience of this. Well, what is our, where, do we experience, where do we experience this adoption, this, this sonship? How is it embodied in our church? You might want to ask, do, do I feel like, when I'm around people in this church, do I feel like I can just be myself? Or does it feel like I've got to keep my guard up? I've got to put my game face on. I've got to keep my guard up. Do I feel like I can be myself? Do I feel like I've got to keep my guard up? Well, does this church get that I'm an established member of this family or does it feel like if I take a, put a foot wrong, they're going to, I'm going to be out on my heel? They'll, they'll boot me out. Do these people treat me like family or do they treat me like a stranger? That's this, this a question. So, so how do we experience, how is this church embodying this spirit of adoption? So, so one of the things I thought would be fun for us to do this morning is if you've got a pen and paper there, right, we, we could make a list of 10 names of people that we know in this church and on a scale of one to ten, one being great and ten being no, one, you know, one, one being great and ten being lousy. Let's put that way around or whatever. <laughs> we'll give them a scale of one to five, and if they get five or below, then scratch them from the list, right? That you don't want them in the club. Kick them out, right? No, I'm being yeah, I'm being ironic. Okay, if we're going to ask this question, if we're going to ask this question. We've got to ask it of ourselves first of all, right? Has this spirit of adoption and sonship so gripped me that people feel they can be themselves around me, like they can breathe? Adoption's got to look like something, and I think it looks like that. Has the spirit of adoption and sonship so gripped me that I can, go, I can affirm, I'm affirming other people as members of this family, members of this body? Or does, do people feel that they've got this secret list of things they've got to be and do first before they're in? Or does my life naturally create a space around it where people feel that they're already invited in? Adoption's got to look like something, and I think it looks like that. does has the spirit of adoption and sonship so gripped me that my life is being brought, frequently brought into a close relationship, meaningful relationships with people from a very different background, people are very different from me, very different, meaningful relationships with people who are very different from me. Does, has the spirit, this, adoption's got to look like something, guys, and I think it looks like that. The spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption. Well, I think this is what Paul means um, when he starts contrasting um, life according to the spirit and life according to the flesh. Um, He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, it sometimes sounds as if what Paul is doing there is contrasting spiritual with physical. Right? And, and he's playing them off against each other. Um, it, it's sometimes Paul's life by the Spirit is understood as a kind of rejection of this life, an ascetic type of teaching that denies this world, rejects the body, condemns matter, looks down on the physical realm as somehow subpar. It's like Paul is saying, don't live now. Something better will come along later on. Give up on life here for a better life over there. It's a the sort of teaching that alienates us from this physical world, from our own bodies, and maybe even from each other. But wait, 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 wait. Paul, Paul's a good Jewish thinker, theologian. Right? He's, he's read stuff like Genesis chapter 1, where God creates the world and says it's good. So he knows, he can't possibly be saying this, because he knows that, that God likes matter and the physical realm. You know why he likes it? Because he invented it. Right? God likes matter because he invented matter. This is his, right? He affirms it as good over and over again. So that can't possibly be what Paul's saying. What Paul is saying is he contrasts life by the spirit or life by the flesh. He's talking about identity. Is your identity rooted in your adoption or is your identity, is there a misguided attempt in your life to root your identity in something else? Is your identity in your adoption, the very core of your being, or is it in your race? Is your identity in your sonship or your identity in culture? Is your identity as an heir or your identity in some worldly status? Is your identity, the very core of your being, rooted in your adoption? Or is there a misguided attempt to root your life, your identity, the core of your being, in something else? So let's... Let's wrap this up. I want to circle back around, if that's okay, to Edward Munch, the, the the artist that we started talking about at the beginning. At some point, he suffered a nervous breakdown, and he goes into this what they called a nerve clinic or, or sanatorium back then. And after he emerges from this, he starts spending much more time with friends, with his patrons, and he's more connected with people. And the art that he produces after this is, is very different. It's, it's much more, there's a, a greater kind of, it's very different to the art that he was producing earlier, where it's about alienation and estrangement and isolation. It, it, in fact, it's the exact opposite. It captures this picture of abundance, of exuberance. It's, it's kind of paintings of life, life in all its fullness. These are pictures, if you like, of, of what it would be like if, if we were to fully participate in life together, together in this world. Very different pictures. And, and what I want to say is this, Paul, when he talks about life in the spirit versus the flesh, he's, he's not pointing us away from that. He's, not, he's pointing us the way to that. He's saying if you want to experience this abundance, this, this full participation, this connectedness with each other and with life in this world, if you want to experience this, your experience is more and more the more you start operating and living out of this, your adoption. Um, I want to end with this, uh, the, just a couple of weeks ago I heard this this story, um, it was a friend of mine telling me about some, some of his close friends who'd adopted some kids from South Korea and these, these kids were street kids, they were orphans um, and they had been surviving on their own on the, on the streets. Uh, but then they get adopted and they get brought to, to the United States and in, this is quite a common experience actually for people who've done this. Um, in the first few months, what they found was money was disappearing from her purse and his wallet. And food was disappearing from the pantry. And it was, it was, they discovered the money under their pillows. And the food was being stored in the, in the, under their bed and in their closet. They were hoarding this stuff. Wait, these kids were adopted. This was their home. All of this stuff, this food, the money, it was all theirs. They were heirs and co-heirs. Heirs and co-heirs. But their adoption hadn't hit them yet. They were not operating and living out of their adoption. And the question I want to leave us with this morning is, are we? Let's pray. Father, we get to call you the God of the universe, our Father, Abba Father. Father, may we operate out of this reality. We thank you for our adoption. The sonship we thank you for making us a family connecting our lives we pray that we would operate and live out of this together so that we may better reflect your image into this world which so desperately needs to see your face father we pray these things in Jesus name and to your glory amen and when it's missed